0: Second Samuel chapter four, beginning in verse one, it says, when Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Ba'ana and the name of the other Rechab, the sons of Rimon, the Beerothite. "...of the children of Benjamin, for Birot also was a part of Benjamin, because the Berothites fled to Getaim and have been sojourners there until this day. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame." His name was Mephibosheth. Then the sons of Ramon, the Beerethite, Rechab and Ba'ana, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Ba'ana, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him and beheaded him and took his head and were all night escaping through the plain. Where David is in Hebron, it's about a 30 mile track. And they would have had to have traveled all night long from the headquarters of Ishbosheth in order to make it. To Hebron. In verse 8, and they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life, and the Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day of Saul and his descendants. But David answered Rechab and Ba'anah his brother, the sons of Ramon the Berethite. and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. When someone told me saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed at Ziklag. the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more? When wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house, on his own bed, Therefore, shall I now now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. In first Sam, or in first Samuel, remember we are introduced to David. His life as a shepherd, his slaying of a giant, his running from Saul. In 2 Samuel, we go from the death of Saul to the beginning of David's reign in chapter 1 through 4. We go from the anointing of David as king of Israel to the revolt of Absalom from chapters 5 through 14. And then we go from the revolt of Absalom to the numbering of the people in chapter fifteen through twenty-four, and we're going to, as we again follow the life of David, learn some amazing lessons. I was attempt to entitle chapter four, "When People Stab You in the Back," but of course Ishbosheth is stabbed in the stomach and then gets his head cut off, which makes. Being stabbed in the back seemed very attractive. This event is going to mark a turning point, both in the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Because it will pave the way for a reunification of both the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. David, remember, is ordained to be the king. And God clearly was able to elevate David to the throne. But David was beginning to learn an important lesson that I'm hoping each and every one of us are beginning to learn. And the lesson, of course, is we do not engage in evil in order to accomplish that which is good. And that principle is reiterated in the book of Romans chapter. Three, verse 8. We do not do that which is wicked and wrong, even when we think that it's going to accomplish something good. And again, David's journey to the throne began as a shepherd. It continued as a giant killer. He's served a brief stint as a fugitive, and at age 30, David will become king, and for 40 years, he will reign. If you turn the page of your Bible over to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4, it basically says, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, And he reigned for 40 years. So now you get an idea of sort of where he's at in the chronology of his life. David's journey to the throne is going to be marked by blood. And of course, it's a very amazing contrast with the journey to the throne of his famous son, Jesus. Jesus doesn't shed the blood of his enemies in order to occupy the throne of his father David. Jesus sheds his own blood to gain a throne. In other words, Jesus doesn't require your blood in order to satisfy justice. But rather gives his own blood in order to satisfy God's justice. And so... In the opening chapters of 2 Samuel, David will learn the lessons of victory with integrity. David begins well enough. Now remember what we're seeing as he's turned from fugitive to now he's right on the threshold of being the king. He seeks the Lord. He keeps his promises. He puts his faith in God. And David, unfortunately, will continue to struggle with the ladies throughout his life. He multiplies wives in Hebron, and in chapter 5, once he assumes the throne, he will again multiply wives in Jerusalem. And so, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, When Saul's son, that's Ishbosheth, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, that's the last chapter, chapter 3, he lost heart. And all Israel was troubled. I want to draw your attention to those three words. He lost heart. Now, I want to remind you of something. Why does Ishbosheth lose heart? Well, the man who had used his power and influence to place him on the throne was dead. Think about this for a moment. How did Ishbosheth become the king? Did God make him the king? No, he was made king by a human being. He trusted in man to gain his position. And so when the man was gone, his position was gone. And that becomes a time when we typically lose heart. If, if a regular human being has placed you in a particular position, if someone gives you a job, they can take the job away. And see, this is one of the key concepts when, you're, when we're talking about Christianity. Who is it that gives you life? It's Jesus who gives you life. Who is it that gives you forgiveness? It's Jesus who gives you forgiveness. Who is it that gives you eternal life? It is Jesus who gives you eternal life. So think carefully for just a moment. All of the things that are worth having are provided to you by Jesus. Now I want you to think about this for just a moment. Everything that has been given to you can be taken away from you but the things that Jesus has given to you can never be taken away from you and that becomes an important key concept especially if you're losing heart the power of Ishbosheth was a power that came from a human being from Abner and so when Abner is gone Ishbosheth is weak and he is unable to retain the power of the throne. Now, again, part of the, the, the point that this passage is making is that Ishbosheth is the picture of helplessness. He is helpless because Abner is dead in verse one. He's helpless because of his own personal cowardice. You have to understand something. His father, Saul, was a great warrior. His brother, Jonathan, was a great warrior. His other brothers were great warriors. They died in the battle with Saul. Ishbosheth was helpless, not only because Abner is gone, not only because of his own cowardice, but also because of the people's fear, and all Israel was troubled. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a vote of no confidence. And again, there is almost a, a kind of sympathy that is taking place. For those of you who have come on Sunday, we were talking about how to deal with people, that we are to confront the unruly, but we are to comfort the needy. And we're to provide help and assistance to the weak. And so he becomes a picture of helplessness. And in verse 2, it says, now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. This means that they were lower level military men. The name of one was Baana and the name of the other Rekab the sons of Remon the Birothite. Now you might be thinking what is a Birothite? Look for the upcoming Super Bowl commercial. I know what you're thinking you're going, yeah is this this, is, this sounds like someone who drinks beer? No, it's not a beer commercial for the Super Bowl. It's also not a guy who Slams down beers. That's not what a Berothite is. Berot was an ancient Canaanite city, and one of four that was controlled by Gibeon in Joshua chapter nine, verse seventeen. Those of you who are familiar with your Bible, you're going to remember who the Gibeonites were. Those of you who are not familiar with your Bible, you're going to go remind me, refresh me. Who were the Gibeonites? The Gibeonites had tricked Joshua into making an alliance with him. In other words, these were the people, when the Lord told Joshua to enter into the country, he said, wipe out these people, don't make pacts or alliances with these people. And the Gibeonites tricked Joshua into making an alliance with him. And so they remained in the land. So some modern Bible scholars place the location of this place as El Birah, and in this particular location, there's a wellspring that's been used for literally centuries, and in ancient times, this was a territory in the land of Israel that belonged to Benjamin. Remember, the northern tribes are to the north. The southern tribes are to the south. Judah and Benjamin, the original inhabitants, had fled to a place called Getim, which was a city of Benjamin. And you can find that in Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 33. Later on in 2 Samuel, we learn that Saul tried to exterminate the Gibeonites in chapter 21, verses 1 through 11 of 2 Samuel, and the reason why this becomes an important bit of information is we don't know for sure, but it could be that these two men might have been trying to take revenge on the son of their enemy, Saul. In other words, they'd risen to the ranks, they became disillusioned, and they decided that they were going to get even, but we don't know for sure. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 3, it says, Because the Berethites fled to Gitaim, and had been sojourners there until this day. So when Second Samuel was written, this was just common knowledge. And then in verse 4, it says, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. The news about Saul and Jonathan from Jezreel, remember, is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Remember, Saul shows up. He has the little encounter with the witch of Endor. Uh, Samuel, the prophet, shows up, says, you're going to die. Both Jonathan and Saul are dead. Their bodies are tacked to the wall at Bethshean um, and and. And when the news came concerning the death of Jonathan and Saul, as you can imagine, Saul's family becomes at risk. And so Mephibosheth is five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. Add seven years to that of the time that David spends as king in Ebron, and you get a little boy at the time of the writing, or at least during the time of the story, is about 12 years old. And so when the nurse took him up and fled, it happened, she she went in haste to flee, that he fell, he became lame. In other words, he was permanently crippled as a result of an accident, and his name is Mephibosheth. And again, as you're reading the text, you might think, well, wait a minute, this Seems like an awkward place to put this information about Mephibosheth, but he's going to be an important part of the story later on in chapter 8. I think that the writer inserted this little fact about Mephibosheth in this part of the story because, again, he's continuing with the theme of helpless. As you can imagine, there's two kinds of helpless people. There are people who are helpless because of seriously bad mistakes that they've made. And there are people who are helpless through no fault of their own, through accidental circumstances. But I think that the theme here is helplessness. And again, I think that the only other heir to Ishbosheth's throne is weak and helpless. In other words, the only other family offspring that is able to provide support cannot provide support. He is literally in a place of emptiness and hopelessness and helplessness. And so in verse five, it says, then the sons of Ramon, the birathite Rechab and Baana, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Hishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. It would appear that Ramon and Rechab are known and trusted in Ishbosheth's household. You don't get to come in and out unless you are known and apparently they're they're under false pretenses. And it would appear that Ishbosheth doesn't have a very good guard. Now, next question. Why is Ishbosheth in bed at noon? Okay, let me put it to you a different way why are you in bed at noon so well there there could be any number of reasons couldn't there he could be sick that's a reason he could be taking a nap that's a reason he could be paralyzed by fear and depression that's a reason The text doesn't tell us, does it? It doesn't say he's sick. It doesn't say he's taking a nap. It doesn't say that he's paralyzed by fear and depression. But when you're helpless and you're empty and you're threatened, it's easy to just try and go to sleep and try and hope that all of your troubles will disappear. And in verse 6 it says, And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat. That means food supplies for the men who were under their authority. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Ba'anah, his brother, escaped. Now apparently he's laid out. They literally approach him in his own bed and they stab him in the stomach. In verse 7 it says, For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom and they struck him and they killed him and they beheaded him and they took his head. And they were all night escaping through the plain because Ishbosheth's headquarters is just 30 miles north to where David's headquarters is in Hebron. Now, Why did they cut off his head? Because they didn't have access to a sure shot camera. There were no electronic devices in that day so that they couldn't take a little snapshot and go, we now have proof that he is dead. Cutting off his head would have been a necessary kind of thing to provide proof of death. And so they cut off his head and then they carry his head through the night into the camp of Hebron to where David is. I was reading that the five most important motives for murder are, let's see if you can guess what they are. The number one motive for murder, money is is one of them. The first motive for murder, according to the FBI, fear. People are afraid And so they kill. You know what the second leading cause of motive for murder is? Jealousy. The third, you know, and and again, I can understand that. Um, For some people, you know, they believe that, that marriage is a lifelong commitment. And so if one or the other party is guilty of indiscretions, the right response seems to be kill this person. Because they don't believe in divorce. It's interesting to me how many people believe in murder more than they believe in divorce. Fear, jealousy, money, revenge. And believe it or not, the last motive, or at least out of the top five, is to protect someone that you love. In other words, there are people who think that they are doing other people a favor because the people that they care about seem threatened. As a matter of fact, one Bible teacher describes the outlaw brothers this way, quote, they're opportunists. They know that Ishbosheth was through, and so they decide to act quickly to ingratiate themselves to David and possibly collect a reward. They felt no loyalty to anyone but themselves, so they set their sails to the prevailing winds for their own good. And that's exactly what happened. They gave themselves permission To do the unthinkable. You know we live in a society where people make decisions on the basis of self-interest all the time. And because people make decisions based on self-interest. Sometimes they're willing to compromise their own deeply held convictions. And as a result every structure in society becomes weakened. You know, I read an interesting story this week. In the spring of 1953, the nation was horrified by the story of an 18-year-old boy who murdered five people. His name, Fred McManus. And he was considered a nice boy in his hometown of Valley Stream, New York. He was tall. He was handsome. He was polite. He was considered to be... From a respectable family and a well-to-do family. And Fred didn't just seem like the kind of guy who was made up of criminal material. And nevertheless, on leave from the Marines, he joined after high school graduation. Young Fred picked up a 16-year-old girl. He started across the country, determined to be married in Minnesota, where he had incorrectly been informed that minors could be married without their parents' permission. And so they thumbed a ride with a 19-year-old student, and then they murdered him. They robbed a store, shooting in cold blood the owner and his wife. And then while robbing a restaurant in Spring Valley, Minnesota, Fred shot a waitress and the owner's wife. And when he was asked for the reason why he committed the crime by the authorities, he said, I was in love, and I needed the money. But the reason he revealed to his intended wife after the first murder... He told her, it doesn't bother me if I don't know the people. And then he said these surprising words. He said, I don't believe in such a thing as a conscience. There is no such thing as conscience. It's just a feeling of fear that sometimes people get. Now think about that for just a moment. Are there people who can suppress their conscience? Remember what the conscience is. It's a moral organ. It doesn't necessarily know what's right. It exists to motivate you to do what's right. And these two men are willing to kill Ishbosheth in order to ingratiate themselves, in order possibly to give a reward, because they see the handwriting on the wall and they think it's their responsibility to go ahead and accelerate these things wrongly. And look at verse 8. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life, and the Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day of Saul and his descendants. Now, make no mistake about it. Is this the first time that David has ever seen a severed head? No. Remember, we learned in 1 Samuel that when he killed Goliath, he chopped Goliath's head off and sort of walked around with it for a very long time. So, severed heads aren't going to gross him out. But here's the deal. Goliath was a legitimate enemy of the people of Israel. They didn't understand David's affection and loyalty to the house of Saul. Remember what we've learned over and over again. Saul was David's enemy. But David was never, ever Saul's enemy. As a matter of fact, remember, remember David's promise to Jonathan. And if you have a Bible, I just want to encourage you to turn back for just a moment to 1 Samuel chapter 24. And in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 20, you'll remember that parting scene between David and Jonathan. And he said, now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand, Jonathan told David. Therefore, swear to me now by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. David swore to Saul. Excuse me, this is not Jonathan and David, this is Jonathan and Saul, after the scene in the in the cave. So I'm gonna repeat it. First Samuel chapter twenty four, verse twenty. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king. This is Saul speaking to David. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me. And that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. David swore to Saul. Now you should underline that. David swore to Saul. To Saul, you might be thinking, hey, wait a minute. When Saul came back after David, you would think that all bets are off. Question. Are all bets off for David? When David said, I will do this. And he swears by the Lord. What do you suppose that means? It means that he's going to make good on his promise. David swore to Saul. And Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now, here's the deal. Do Rechab and Ba'anah know this? Are they aware of the promise that David made to Saul? Maybe, maybe not. Bummer. Bummer for Rechab and Ba'anah. You know this this becomes an important point because again even if they're mid-level military men in the former army of Saul and now they're in the army of Ishbosheth I suspect that they may have been aware of the promise and they may not have but it could very well be that these are men who aren't used to keeping their word for them an oath or a promise is really meaningless And they're unaware of David's heart. And they're unaware of David's character. Now, I think that this is important for us because... Just like there are people who don't read the Bible and they don't understand the heart of Jesus and they don't understand the character of Jesus. You probably grew up in circumstances where you had ideas before you became a Christian. Well, what is God like and what is heaven like and what is Jesus like? You know, you might have had pictures of a little child when you would pray, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. You never imagined a Jesus who was in heaven. You never imagined a Jesus whose heart burns in love for you, but who also burns in judgment against the people who take advantage of people. On more than one occasion, people have said to me, I don't believe in, in a Jesus who would ever judge people. Then they don't believe in a Jesus who reads the New Testament. Because Jesus is constantly discerning between right and wrong and good and evil. There is a Jesus who's overturning the money changers. There's a Jesus who's confronting the Pharisees. There is a Jesus who antagonizes and alienates people who are absolutely committed to going in a different direction than the direction that God has ordained. They don't know Jesus, and they don't know the character of Jesus. They don't know the Jesus who makes promises and keeps promises. Is David a perfect person? No. Does David make promises? Yes. Does he keep them for the most part? In verse 9, it says, But David answered Rechab and Ba'ana, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Burethite. I want to say light. Every time I see that word, but. And he said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. When someone told me, saying, Look Saul is dead thinking to have brought good news I arrested him and executed him in Ziklag the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house and in his own bed and you might think how could David characterize Ishbosheth as a righteous person in his own house and in his own bed and it's easy Ishbosheth has not committed any crimes worthy of death. Ishbosheth's crime is to be the son of Saul. That's his crime. And so he says, therefore shall I now not require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth. In other words, David's judgment is swift. Now, some people might think at this point, well, excuse me, did David give him his Miranda rights? Hey, wait a minute. Does David even have jurisdiction in this trial? Ishbosheth, is he a Judean? No, he's a Benjamite. Was he killed in Judea? No, he's not killed in Judea. So what gives David the right to be their judge? What do you think the answer is? The answer is because David is the king. He's the rightful king over all of Israel. And David will make himself their judge. He has the power and he insists on his right to act on behalf, not just simply Concerning Judah, but concerning all of Benjamin and concerning all of the tribes everywhere. He insists on his right to act on behalf of the welfare of all Israel. you know what he's doing? He's acting like a king. Why is this an important point for you? Because there might be someone in your life... And it might even be your own heart that asks the question. What gives Jesus the right to judge me? What gives him the right to look inside of my heart and to look inside of my circumstances and be the judge of my life? I'm sure that at some point in your life, someone has said to you, who gave you the right to be my judge? And the right answer, of course, is. I'm not your judge. I'm not the person who determines eternal life. I'm not the person who makes up his or her mind concerning if you get to go to heaven or if you get to go to hell. But the person who does make that choice, the living Lord of the universe, is the son of David. He has been sent by God in order to address the issues in your life. And the judgment is swift. I'm going to give you another reason that I think that there was a public trial and a public execution. Do you suppose that it's possible that there were cynics in the northern kingdom who would have suggested that David hired them as assassins and now he was going to reward them because this is what he always wanted anyway is the throne and he was willing to do whatever it took in order to get the throne. I'm sure that there were critics who could make that claim. Is it true Is David willing to assume the throne through intrigue and murder and assassination and wickedness? The answer is no. David will be on the throne according to God's timetable and according to God's will. And Jesus will be on the throne. This is what Paul means when he says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, Jesus isn't going to be the king and the Lord because I say so. Jesus is going to be the king and the Lord because God has ordained it from since before the beginning of time that he would be both king and he will be both Lord and he will be the king and the Lord throughout eternity, whether you cooperate or whether you don't cooperate. And it's interesting to me. The assassins have nothing to say in their own defense. And clearly, Ishbosheth was not king in the same sense that David is the anointed. But guess what? Ishbosheth is a human being. He's a human being. And guess what? As a human being, you can't just take the life of another human being and and have the expectation that God is okay with that. David was learning fast. Let God take vengeance. Let God even the score. David would not accept their evil deed, even though it seemed to serve a good purpose in order to make him king. It was G. Campbell Morgan who wrote, While it is true that God overrules all the doings of men and compels them ultimately to serve his high purposes, it is equally true that no servant of his can ever consent to do evil, that good may come. It is an arresting truth that the Lord in the days of his earthly life would not accept the testimony of demons. Remember when he approached the demoniac at the gathering, and remember the demon cries out, You're the Lord! You'll remember when Paul was being followed in the book of Acts in the, in the city of Ephesus where this demon-possessed woman would cry out, These are, are men from God. Well, what they're saying is true, but consider the source. Jesus isn't going to get his adulation from demons. And David isn't going to be king on the basis of an assassination. And so in verse 12, look what it says. So David commanded his young men, and they executed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. Now you have to understand something. According to the law in Deuteronomy, this is a most egregious way to die. In other words... There is a sense of public cursing and humiliation that is taking place. And they hang them by the pool in Hebron because guess what? The pool in Hebron is where everybody went to go get a drink of water. This would have been like putting it on CNN and Fox News and all of the outlets and on the internet in order to let as many people know as possible, this is where I stand. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and they buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron and now remember what we, I've already told you about the tomb of Abner in Hebron Abner is the general Hebron is the place where they're buried and this is the place where Abraham is buried this is the place where Sarah is buried this is the place where where Isaac is buried this is the place where Um, Joseph is buried. This This is like Arlington National Cemetery. This is the place where you bury the respected dead. And by this act of justice, David shows to all of Israel that he's an enemy to anyone who would take vengeance on the house of Saul. If anyone would lift up their hands against them. In other words, David made a promise and David was going to keep his promise. And also David was going to oppose anyone who was going to try to undo or to negate that promise. Do you know why this is, again, important to you? Jesus takes the promises that he makes to you very seriously. There is a world out there that it will try to lie to you and tell you that the, Je- the promises of Jesus are not true. There is a devil out there who will whisper in your ear that the promises aren't true. It says, thus David acted with strict justice in this case also. Kyle and Delatrite write, not only to prove to the people that he had neither commanded nor approved of the murder, but from heartfelt abhorrence of such crimes and to keep his conscience void of offense toward God and towards man he is going to assume the throne and he's going to do so with a clean conscience now remember in 2 Samuel it goes from the death of Saul to the beginning of David's reign that's what we've looked at in the first four chapters When we begin in chapter 5 and we go all the way through verse 14, we're going to come upon the anointing of David as king. And then we're going to see quickly how his life disintegrates as king. Because remember, he starts off very, very good. But there will be moments of compromise there will be moments of inconsistency, and there will be moments of out-and-out out failure. You know, David refuses to assume the throne, clearly went on the basis of murder, but there is blood that's being spilt in order to get him to that high place. There is blood that's spilt. That brings Jesus to the place. Where he will be both Lord and King. His blood is shed as Savior. But guess what? Jesus will be judge of everyone. On the throne of Calvary. On the cross of Calvary. And on the throne in heaven. But either way all human beings have to come to him. Either as savior or as judge but make no mistake each and every human being will appear before that throne we're going to have communion a little bit early and I'm going to get you guys out of here early so I'm sure that Isaac and the worship team are going where what now so Isaac And the worship team, wherever you are, find your way back on the platform. And while they're finding their way to the platform, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And while you're turning there to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to be talking a little bit about the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to invite you to join us in the Lord's Supper. Now what's going to happen is we're going to distribute the elements and what I'm asking you to do is to just hold on to the elements until we all have an opportunity to uh, partake together. You know what? Blood has always been God's requirement as a sacrifice for sin. But God's justice... God's justice requires that sin be paid for. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that in just a moment. Let me pray for you and then we're going to hand, hand out the uh, the elements and I'm just going to read um, before we partake together 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 through 32. Just take a moment but for now let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank you and we praise you for your love. Lord we know that there was a king that the people were looking for. A king who would shelter them. Who would protect them from their enemies. Who would provide for them in deep difficulty. Who would be strong and moral and good. And Heavenly Father, I suspect that each and every person is looking for a leader who will be good and gracious, who will be kind and loving, who will be generous and supportive. And Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that we have a Lord like no other. Why would anyone want any other king other than Jesus? What other king loves us so much? What other king is willing to shed his own blood? What other king is willing to be consistently gracious and forgiving. Lord, we are a debtor to Jesus for grace and mercy. But Lord, we can with confidence say that we owe no debt to the Father because Jesus has satisfied that debt, our sin debt. Our sins have been forgiven. We have been redeemed and released and that we've been given the promise of eternal life. And so, Heavenly Father, for the person who is here and who feels helpless, that they can no longer help themselves, that their own leadership and lordship has proven futile, Lord, I pray that you would also reveal to them that it will prove fatal. But it doesn't have to end badly. That each and every one of us can give our heart to Jesus. Our sin bearer. The lover of our soul. The forgiver and cleanser of our conscience. And the person who gives us eternal life. And so Heavenly Father we pray that we would prepare our hearts. That Lord we would celebrate your love your sacrifice, your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.